If you're a fan of the classic metal show and you've progressed past a flip phone, then you better have the CMS app on your phone. Get it today. It's in both the Google and iOS app stores. It's the CMS app. Get it? It's got everything you would possibly want from the CMS. So get it today and stay connected to the CMS. Right here on the classicmetalshow.com. That is uh, up from the ashes with Forever. And uh, that, of course, is Don Dockin from a solo release from 1990. And uh, Chris, do you see? Oh, there he is. There's our good friend, Don. Hey, guys. <laughs> Can you hear me okay? Well, you're you're loud and clear, Don. All right. <laughs> well, there you are. We haven't, I haven't talked to you. Really, I haven't talked to you since uh, Labor Day. And I'm glad to see yeah. you. I'm glad to see you're alive and kicking. I'm alive and kicking and freezing. It's cold <laughs> up there. It's not snowing. That's a good thing. Well, well, Don, I know that you're, you are a lifelong Southern California guy. And, and the fact that you have relocated up to the mountains of uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico is a big change for you. And, you know, obviously we've talked about this over the last few years since you bought your house up there. Are you, are you acclimated to this at all? Are you digging this? Are you going, man, fuck this. I'm, I'm going back to Southern California. Well, I kept my house in L.A. in case I need a quick escape. <laughs> so I got the houses still in L.A., but um, I'm acclimated, Just, but I have to say the altitude is high. This house is at 8,000 feet. That's really way up there, and I've been in the, the beach at zero for my whole life. So I'm acclimated kind of okay, but like you see, I got my – my fuzzy bathrobe. I'm in the studio, so I'm looking out the city and the lights and sit at the tip of the Colorado mountains. And it's chilly, you know, but uh, it is what it is, you know. Well, you know, I, I've had the uh, opportunity to come out there and visit you at the Casa Ladakan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Cloudstone Manor. That's right. It was snowy when he came out, right? Well, it snowed the day after I left, the day after oh. Labor Day. Oh, that's right. It snowed like hell. You you just escaped. <laughs> but uh, you know, you're you're way up there a mile high above above the city and it's a yeah. it's a beautiful view up there. It's it's uh fantastic, but man, it, it can get the, the weather can change on a dime. Yeah, when I wake up sometimes in the morning and go Oh shit! It snowed, which means I can't leave, you know, because that's you know that crazy driveway. Of mine's like almost a mile long, but you know I have chains. But you know, the bitch about chains is you got to put them on, get down the mountain, then you got to take them off because to get onto the, you know, the tarmac. But it snowed, and uh, but now it's all. I went to Albuquerque today. Look at a dog, some crazy looking dog. He looked like a tiger. I can't remember the name of the dog. It had like stripes all over it, gray and black, and uh, he looked like a tiger. But uh, as usual, we I only get, you know, we get abused dogs. And I kept saying, well, why is the dog's tail tucked on? I figured he was just scared. But somebody had broke his tail, so the tail was crooked, and his legs have kind of like some weird-looking calcium deposits, and 
And I said, this dog's really a mess and abused. I guess we'll get him. So, <laughs> so I'll probably go back Monday. I was just looking on the internet earlier if I can take him to the vet and have his tail straightened out surgically, <laughs> you know, but I don't know. I'll find out on Monday. Yeah, somebody really sweet dog. Yeah, I took I took the other two dogs that are left. You know, everybody knows I lost Cody. So I'm still a little bit in mourning about Cody. He's only been gone a little over a month, but uh, I figured I, you know, I still got the two other shepherds, but uh, yeah, this dog's a mess. Well, but I've never seen a dog that looks like a tiger. <laughs> I mean, stripes all over the place, man. It's a crazy looking shepherd. Wow. It's, it's some crazy name, but I'm, I'm happy <clears throat> working on songs. Uh, there's this game out called Battlefield One. And they called me the other day from Canada, actually, and they want to put the new version out. It's a real popular name by, from Apex Legends. Chris probably knows about all that video stuff. And uh, right now they're using Jack Black's song from the White Stripes in the video game. And you're playing forever, and they want to use uh, Crash and Burn from Up to the Ashes. And I went, okay, that was an interesting pick. So... But I got to find the tapes. <laughs> they want the masters. Like, they mean the master masters, like the drums, the guitars, the vocals, Norm and Billy White solos. They want to break it all down for the video game. I said, have at it. If you can find it in the Universal Vaults with the other 100,000 tapes, good luck. So well, that's what's up with me. Well, well Don, I, I want to ask you something about this up from the ashes. A lot of people love that disc i play it pretty regularly myself and and i yeah. love i love those tunes and you know the thing is is and you've said this a million times before when you know the the story came out with uh jeff and george and mick doing the end machine it's going to be quote unquote dockinish and you said well i don't know how it can be dockinish because i didn't write any of the songs which correct <laughs> which there's a lot of truth to that because if you if you listen to up from the ashes it could have been the next record after uh back for the attack and it was supposed to be you know until uh you know the band disintegrated like so many other bands have in their past i've been watching as as we all probably do a lot of netflix and ain't much to do when you're on lockdown and been watching a lot of these breaking the bands and uh Bands break up, bands get back together, bands change members. But yeah, Up From the Ashes was, when someone says it sounds docking I don't know what that means, because the songs are in my head. You know, the, the, the style of music is in my head, the music's in my head. I guess you can try to copy me, but I don't really know what that means, docking because it's not coming out of my head musically, so. Don't know what that means. I mean, it's like me saying, yeah, my new album's very uh, Rolling Stones-ish. You know, I'm not Keith Richards. You know, I, I don't know what that means. So, As long, well, as, it, as, as, long as it doesn't sound shadow life-ish, it's good with us, Don. Yeah, that's, you know, I don't even mention that. That Definitely that album had nothing to do with me, as you know. We talked about it, Chris. I mean... They that is a record that they wrote and sent me all the music and I went, uh, what's all this weird monster magnet, weird stuff? Uh and I literally they sent me the album and I just I think I wrote all the lyrics like in four days. 
because I didn't get it, you know? So I just, just wrote lyrics and just went, whatever. I wrote a couple songs on that record, the ballad and a couple others, but yeah, that was their baby. That's still Mick's favorite. He loves, Ugh. he loves Shadow Life because he played great drums on that album. Well, but, uh, and the whole making of that record was so, uh, such a nightmare, you know? He had to go to Arizona because George refused to come to LA. And we went to his studio. I remember in the studio had sawdust and drywall. And I think the guy there was a hoarder. And so Mick and I were playing uh, maid duty and trying to clean the place up and sweep it all out. And it was just, the place was just a piece of junk, that studio. Open up the freezer and they hadn't cleaned it out in like five years. And we had to defrost all this rotten food. And I was like, hey, we're having fun now, folks. <laughs> well, the point I was getting to, Don, and I know I've talked to you about this on a few occasions, that, uh, you know, obviously, Dokken as a entity is still, you know, intact because, you know, you're you're the main, you know, person in the band yeah and and the fact that uh you know up from the ashes has been kind of shelved for you know literally a couple of decades a couple decades yeah people have asked why won't don play a tune or two from that record at you know at some point well i always have the same answer to that is you know up from after that i've done another five records since then you know true and there were some really good ones. I thought the record we did with Red Beach, Race of Slave, was a killer record. Yeah. And that was an old school record. We actually wrote it as a band, you know. When I had my recording studio still in the South Bay, I, we all just went into the recording studio, into the control room and plugged in and just, what do you got? What do you got? Jeff, Jeff had an idea. Rap had ideas. Mick had ideas. And we literally wrote that album like in three weeks. And... It was what I call pure stream, pure stream of consciousness. So it was a band effort as opposed to the unfortunate, infamous way that all Dawkins, as you know, all Dawkins albums are written. They always thought it was Jeff Mick and, and George and me sitting in a room writing songs. We never did. They wrote where they wanted to write. And I wrote in my little apartment then and, for years and uh, I wrote all, and in my house and I just wrote all the stuff I wrote by myself. So that was kind of weird. We go into rehearsal. I said, this is what I brought to the table. This is what you guys brought to the table. And then I'd rewrite stuff and rewrite the lyrics. And uh, yeah, I, I would say the only song we've written as a band was uh, it's just another day for the reunion tour of Japan. That song, that video, that was, the first time with the four of us that sat down and wrote a song together in, you know, 35 years. Don, uh, I'm curious, Don. Um, I don't know if you even are aware of this, but George and Jeff just put out a covers album, um, I believe, yesterday. Covers? Um, really? Yeah, of, um, it, and and it's it's weird. It's, it's not covers you would expect. It's R.E.M., Carol King, Duran Duran, Prince... Oasis. I mean, it's this odd cover thing, but yet everywhere in the press release on it is docking, docking, docking. You know, does does that yeah. does that kind of stuff bug you? And I know I don't think it was them that wrote it. I think it's the you know the various publicists or the 
or magazines that put the put the articles out. But it, does it bug you when they do stuff that you just wouldn't do? And then somehow I'm thinking you wouldn't be caught dead doing Prince covers. No, or Carol King or whoever else you said. Uh, Ran Duran. That's really weird. As you know, and I would say in almost <clears throat> at least five or six albums I've done the last 10 or 12 years, hell, last 20 years, we'd always put a cover on the album. But I always wanted to put covers that I grew up with as a young teenager. It was kind of my way of like, let's do this song because I really dug this song. And I was trying to like play it forward to turn people onto songs of the new generations. And like we did Bus Stop by the Hollies. It was killer. We did uh, from One Live Night. We did From the Beginning, from ELP. We did, uh, I did uh, Paint It Black by the Stones. Uh, what else did I, you know, I've done a lot of those cover songs, but, and I heard, I heard some album just came out called Lynch Mob Reimagined. Yes. yes. Terrible. Terrible. It's really not good. It's not good? <laughs> no, no, they, they, they did some kind of, uh, acoustic sort of funky reworking of all the songs from the debut Lynch album, the Lynch Mob album. What? That'd be like me doing Up to the Ashes again or Tooth and Nail again or Back to the Attack again. I mean, you let it go, man. I mean, Goofy albums are one thing, but let it go. You know, I, yeah, I do do cover songs once in a while. Um, when I'm watching, listening to some old 60s station, I'll go, oh man, I heard that song when I was like 14 years old, man. We should do that again and just put a little teeth on it. Uh, what was the one I wanted to do on this new album? Uh, uh, I can't remember uh, some psychedelic song by the Strawberry Alarm Clock, and uh, I can't remember what it was called now. But it was a real like one of the first songs I ever heard by this band called Strawberry Alarm Clock, and it was the only hit they ever had. But it's a really, really uh, a cool song, so we might work that up. But you know, I, I don't know. I guess the COVID thing, you know. You got Jeff who lives literally a block away from George and Jeff has his little studio at his house and they just go in there. And I mean, I think they, I think George has put out more records in like the last five years. And I put out my whole career. <laughs> he just cranks them out. But I, but why I'd have to, I'll have to ask him, why would they pick those songs that have nothing to do with what we were coming from? Nothing. Yeah. Well, and what I find ironic is they don't sell it as the end machine or two guys from the end machine or, or anything like that. It's first word. I'm, I'm looking right now on ultimate classic rock. First word of the article is docking. First word is docking docking duo, George Lynch and Jeff Pilsen. Well, that is so funny because, because, uh, well, it's irony there because, like I've said in the press, I guess, when we got back together in 95, uh, we were we just put out Shadow Life, you know, and I hated the record. I go, this has nothing to do with Doc, and it's some really wackadoodle songs. <laughs> and uh, George and I had to go literally around. We had to go to, like, Prague, Japan, Germany, Italy, England, we just did a whole whirlwind 
press junket, as they say it around the world, just George and I. And and we started fighting on that thing again. And then we did the tour. And I remember, I, I'll never forget it, because I asked George when I said, what is what can I do to make us, you know, be cohesive and be a band? What is the problem? And I'll never forget, we are standing on the side of the stage, uh, sound check, and he pointed up at the backdrop that said, Dawkin. And he said, that's the problem. So he hated the fact the band was called Dawkin, but yet they piggybacked on that name for decades now. So right. kind of a contradiction in that. Sure. Do you remember hanging up on me in an interview during that interview cycle? With you? With me. Uh, well, I did a lot of interviews. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, we did an interview. I did. That was weird. I took my, uh, I took my, uh, I can't remember my daughter or my son or one of them. So that kind of kept me busy so we could like kind of be like sightseeing, do press, and they could see the world at 14. But uh, yeah, we did a shitload of press on that. But it, it was uh, it was hard because they're asking me about it, you know, from Shadow Life. I go, so tell us about your new record. What do you think? And I'm going, uh, it's different. <laughs> and Bear's like, it's great. It's really awesome, man. Jira, Jeff and I wrote most of the songs. And I'm like, you can take credit. Go for it. You know, I don't want to take credit for it. But it's hard when someone you try to promote something to sell, and I really didn't like it. You know, it'd be like you know building a car, and it comes out, and they say, "What do you think?" I go, "It's a piece of crap, but buy it anyway." <laughs> you know, it's got a four-cylinder engine, fifty horsepower. It rattles and thumps and bumps down the road. It's got an ugly body style, but buy it. <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta tell you a story, Don, and this goes way back to just after Shadow Life was re, you know, released, and you guys were actually touring on it. But I was talking to you, and you were, you were, you guys were playing at the Cleveland Agora. Oh uh, yeah. And we were talking, and it was, you know, we were outside, and you guys were doing a bus tour. You guys were on a bus. A bus. And, yeah, you you were on a bus. Oh, yeah, back in the 1800s when they had tour buses. <laughs> and we were talking about the whole shadow life thing. And you're, I don't, I think Fingers was, was your tour manager at the time. Yeah. And he was just like, Don, you got to get on the bus. You got to get on the bus. And you and I were talking. So you were literally on the step of the bus as the bus was pulling away, hanging onto the handrail. And you were just go, I never even liked that record. Our logo wasn't even on that. It was just a fucking font. <laughs> and that's, that's right. That's one of the only, it's good trivia. That's the only Dokken record under ever released under the name Dokken that my logo is not on it. I know. And that's, that was the last word you said as you were driving out of town, hanging on the handrail of the, of the bus. <laughs> It wasn't even the Dokken logo. It was just a fucking font. And a bad one at that. And <laughs> and and that album cover was lame. It looked like a five-year-old cut a bunch of pictures out of a magazine and glued them on. And a picture of a guy with a hat and there was a heart. And but I thank God by then I had, you know, trademarked my name and owned the logo. But so the record company put out some 
It was a really appropriate album cover. It was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. I loved it. But well, uh, Mick played great, and we did. We wasted money on that record. Like the guy we hired, Kelly Gray. Kelly Gray was in oh. uh, was in uh, Queensryche for a nanosection, and he <laughs> produced a candle box. And he had this wild idea: we're going to go into an airplane hangar. And we're going to set up mixed drums in an airplane ha hangar and at, you know, $8 billion a day and drag all the recording equipment, the console, all the wires. You know, we had to do all this stuff and drag it all into a, a, an airplane hangar to cut the drums. And I thought, this is so, this is insane. Because, you know, microphones are two inches away from a tom-tom or two inches away from the kick drum. So being in a 10,000 square foot hangar had nothing to do with the drum sound. It was just indulging and spending money as fast as they could spend it. I wasn't involved, but we did a lot of records like that where we spent, like Mick said once in an interview, he goes, yeah, you go in the studio and you cut an album for a couple hundred thousand dollars and then you go and do a video for $200,000 in one day. I mean, what a waste of money everybody used to, you know, to spend. And I don't think anybody was aware. I was aware. Guys, <laughs> it's our money. I don't give a shit. The record company's paying for it now. Don't expect a royalty check when we spent half a million dollars on bullshit. <laughs> you know, it, it, we're, there's no such thing as they, they didn't give us the money. They, they, they take the money. They give it to you like a bank. And you never see a dime unless you recoup. So it's sad to see the money. Like I remember tooth and nail, uh, George disappeared for, I don't know, four days. And, and we were paying 2,500 bucks a day in Cherokee, which was kind of good. Cause I got to go in with Michael Wagner and start cranking out some vocals without any drama. And, uh, and finally I said, we got to get George back in the studio. We got to go find him. And I said, I think I know where he is. And I probably shouldn't tell you where he was. So, but I found him. Yeah. <laughs> Don, Don, I never asked you this question. And since you brought this up over your career from, you know, like 81 until current, how much money do you think was spent on studio time, production time, you know? Wow. Over that period of time, you know, well, a 30 year period or maybe, a you know, close to a 40 year period. How much money do you think was spent on production time overall? A couple million. I know we I know we spent 400,000 on Up in the Ashes. We actually did Up in the Ashes twice. Wow. That sucked. I mean, I produced it. We did the entire record. It was done. And Tom Zutat came in and said, listen to the whole album. And he said, uh, you know, I think the bass is too low. And and uh, I said, okay, I'll raise the bass up. That takes about 30 seconds to push the fader, you know. And he said, I think we should do it again. And I went, you got to be kidding me. I was burned out. I was done. I was toast. And he, he wanted me to do it again. Then, then Wynn Davis said, you know, Mickey D can't play very well. And I'm like, Mickey D can't play very well. <laughs> he wanted me to bring in Terry Bazio for the ballad. 
He wanted me to bring in Tony Franklin, great bass player, said that Peter Baltus couldn't, didn't have the right vibe for one of the songs. And I was kind of a mess emotionally and spiritually. And I just kind of went, oh, okay, I guess we have to do this. You know, so $400,000 on the record. It took nine months. And I remember the band was so, instead of going, we got it, it's done, it's great. We were all worn out and tired and dejected and everybody was exhausted. And that's why I grabbed everybody and, and took them on a vacation, the whole band. I think we went to Mexico and, uh, you know, a lot of money wasted, but, and the joke is breaking the chains. We did it for 30,000 marks, which was about, uh, 15,000 bucks. <laughs> 15,000 bucks. Race of Slate, we cut my studio for, I don't know, 40 grand. But those albums like Tooth and Nail and all that, yeah, we blew hundreds of thousands of dollars. We had Wayne Isham, who was a famous director then. He was doing Motley, Bon Jovi, everybody and their mother. And, uh, you know, he did our videos, some of them, and they cost like, you know, 150, 200 grand <coughs> for a four-minute video. Wow. What so was, I, was the video where you were on the back of the truck, one of them? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was a great idea. Like, make joke. You know, so we're going to do this thing, man. And you guys are going to wear fire suits. And you're going to be on the back of a fire truck. And you're going to be going down the road in Boston. And it's 25 degrees. And then we're going to turn into, there's going to be a monster. An animation monster is going to come out. And he's going to be, and we're going to be firemen. And we're putting out a burning building. And and the monster's trying to get us. And then, and then the monster turns into George's guitar, and, and we're sitting there going, what? <laughs> Burning like a flame. Burning like a flame. But, you know, when you tell somebody that, we're going, what the hell are you talking about? And then we didn't like the video. It was horrible. Uh, they went around my back and released it to MTV uh, ahead of us for screening. And of course, I threw my hissy fit and I said, look, this video is a joke. That's not animation. That's that's some bad, bad animation. And so we went back in, spent more money and built that maze. You know, we're walking through a maze and oy, oy, oy. And, you show, and you showed off your dance moves. Oh, God. <laughs> hey, I have a patent on that move, man. <laughs> He kept saying, move around more. I go, uh, I got two feet this way and two feet. I, I'm a little cubicle. I go, what am I supposed to do? So I started doing some really bad 60s twist or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about uh, It's Not Love off the back of the uh, flatbed truck? No, that was fun. That was done not by Wayne, but one of his uh, assistant directors, God, I can't remember his name right now. He was a Italian guy, fun guy. We rode Harleys together, and but that was fun because you just we went down the boulevard and and just did our thing. And I just remember we kept getting pulled over every four or five miles by the police because we were blasting the music and these giant speakers really loud, and people are calling the cops. So <laughs> we, we started out in North Hollywood, ended up at the Rainbow, of course. And by the time they announced it on the radio, we we're going to end up there. 
If you see in the video, there's like a thousand people in the streets. They're blocking traffic. The cops are pissed off. Uh, that one girl jumps up at the end, pulls up her top, and we cut. You know, I had to cut that part out. But that was fun. I had fun doing this on love. It just was dangerous as hell. I mean, I literally was hanging on for dear life. But as you know, you drove trucks, Wendell. They're not exactly got the suspension of a Cadillac. <laughs> not at all. You get a bump. You're going like this. I'm trying to, like, rock out. Oh, man, this is great, man. Whoa. It's crazy, you know. But we did some crazy things back then. So, uh, but the money was spent. You know, I wish you wouldn't ask me. Now I'm going to be, um, now I'm going to want to go back and look at the budget. Over 30 years. It's probably a couple million bucks. But you look at Def Leppard. Uh, they spent four years on Pyromania. They spent easily a million dollars on that record mm -hmm. with uh, Mutt Lang. And it, were, it paid off because the album sold, you know, 80 copies. 100 million copies. So yeah. it worked out for them. Metallica, they're in the studio for years uh, with Bob Rock. And, you know, some bands take three and four years to make a record. But I guess if it sells 75 million, 100 million records, it's peanuts, isn't it? Yeah. Is, yeah. is it is it still fun for you today? Because you've kind of done everything. I mean, what there's yeah. not there's not like, you know, it's not like when you were doing those records and you were still doing new things. You were still experimenting with videos, or you were going to cities you hadn't been to, or countries you hadn't been to, or true. You know, is is it still fun now, or is it more? Well, this is my gig, and I gotta I gotta do it. You know, it's fun. I mean, we've been. Because of the COVID thing, you know, luckily the last time we did Broken Bones, we had uh, about six songs left over that were kind of like done, that we liked them. They didn't make it on the record. Uh, I had lyrics. There were scratch tracks and then they fell by the way. So I pulled, I went and found those songs. We did those and the world's changed now. You know, I just, I, because there were no computers or cell phones back then, I just take the song and send the drum tracks, a drum machine, send it to BJ in Connecticut. He puts real drums on it. He sends it back to me. Then I sent it to Chris. He puts the bass on. Then I sent it to John LA. He puts the solos on. And we're like recording over the internet, which is kind of strange because there's no spiritual connection. We're not there in the same room. It's not the okay. same. And apparently every band's doing that. I see a bunch of bands this week have albums coming out that they did over the internet. Yeah. Well, you know, the whole live stream thing is, is really big since this whole COVID thing has happened. You know, a lot of these bands are doing these live shows where yeah. they're performing either new songs or maybe performing their entire album, you know, one of their most popular albums and they're doing it in their, respective areas and whatnot and it seems to be fairly successful but uh what are you going to do at this point i mean you, you know obviously the last time you got to go out and perform live was back what what was it july i think or june march i think it was march well i did, uh, I did arkansas and virginia yeah that was like in i think it was in june i don't know i don't remember i just remember we did two shows as an experiment <laughs> and it was like a 5,000 seat outdoor venue and they allowed 2,500 people in. 
social distancing, checking temperatures. Uh, we literally, no meet and greets. We stayed away from everybody. Nobody's allowed to talk to us. You know, we, we had, we were surrounded by security and we did it, but uh, that was it, you know, but that was even before it really, the COVID thing was just, I mean, look at LA. I mean, I'm from LA. I mean, my kids are there. I mean, LA is like the number one. They're, they're having like 3,000 deaths a day, 10, 15, 20,000 new cases a day. I, I don't know what happened to LA. They just exploded, but everyone says because of Thanksgiving, you know? Yeah. So well, it, it is what it is. So I guess COVID is a terrible thing and people are dying and, and some people think it's not real and that's because they're idiots. Um, but it's given me an opportunity to write. I just keep writing and writing and writing and the bitch is because of this, you know, as you see, my fingers are a little on the bent side <laughs> as opposed to, I, I can't do that. I can't, I can do this. So the bitch is I can't hold a pick because my arm's still paralyzed. So I'm still working on that, doing acupuncture and ketamine treatments and, you know, and lifting weights, but I'm not trying to be negative. I'm trying to be like the book, the secret, just, mind over matter and be positive. It'll come back someday. It's been a year, but um, the bitch is I can't compose any more songs. So John's taken over the helm writing songs and John writes riffs. As he says, they sound like doc, <laughs> but you know, John's kind of got a good handle on the way I write. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, a, we're not a fusion band. You got a verse, you got a bridge, you got a chorus. You go back to verse, chorus, bridge, you got a solo, you know, bridge out, you know, just a standard format. So he's just sending me stuff. You know, Chris sent me a song called uh, I Still Got Some Life to Me Yet. And that's a pretty cool song. I'm going to work on that. But uh, as you see, I, you know, I got it. Well, actually, I got a beard again. Holy shit. I didn't know that. <laughs> I just fucking shaved yesterday. Hmm, where'd that come from? <laughs> so I wait till it gets real because I always told people, you know, Chris, like when I'm making a record, people know well, Don's got a beard. He must be making a record. Right. I, I stopped shaving the day I started making the record and I shave the day it's done. But I, I couldn't take it anymore. I was looking like, uh, you know, a guy in the wilderness. I was looking like it was big. It was long and gray. So, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, I. I'm, my dilemma is I'm trying to stay away from subjects about COVID, right? Uh, the government. I've never been a political person. I've never got involved. I don't think I voted. Shame on me! Till I was, you know, pushing fifty. I just wasn't a political person. But you know, I know Wendell's got his guy and what he likes, and you guys have your take on who you think is a good president. And I have my take on that and we won't get into that, but you know, I'll be happy in 31 days when uh, whoever that guy is, is out of office. You know, I think our country's gone in the shitter and I'm embarrassed. And I feel like if we go on tour again, someone says, where are you from? I'm going to say Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're not real popular right now. When you got a president, let's be honest, whose favorite two people is Kim Jong-un and uh, Vladimir Putin, two mass murderers, and those are his buddies. That's, that, that tells me something. 
you know? I mean, come on, man. Putin, Putin was a, you know, KGB, threw tens of thousands of people in jail, took all their money, grabbed all the billionaires' money, took it for himself. And then we find out, what, two days ago that the KGB is hacked into all our home defense. So, and, and Trump said nothing because Putin's his buddy. So I'm just a guy up here in the boonies trying to survive and I can't change the world. Hey, that's a good title for a song. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm just trying to do the best I can. And I kind of try to stay away from the news and CNN because I don't want to write songs about just what's going on, right? Because I've always done that before about what's going on in my life. But the world's a mess. The last time he wrote, I wrote a song politically was uh, uh, two albums ago, which was Hell to No. What was that damn song I wrote? Hmm, can't remember. When Nora, on Long Way Home, I think, it was, uh, it was a song about governments and destruction and the apocalypse. And we did a video and... What the fuck was that song called? Uh, man, I'm getting old. Can't remember anything. And we filmed it in a basement, I remember. Mick goes, you get one take. Empire. Empire. That whole song is po political. And it was like 105 degrees down in some basement. Again, we're going to go in this basement of an old hotel. And it's 105 degrees and it smells like mold. And we'll go down the basement and we'll set up in the corner and film a video. I go... What? Why? Why are we in this basement? I mean, it's not special. It's just a scummy old basement. Didn't make any sense, but, you know, the director had an idea. And so, uh, but I'm going to try to go back to what I, I've always written about, as you know. Jeff always called me the crooner because, you know, I write about love found, love lost, hoping for better times you know, like songs like In My Dreams and Alone Again and Into the Fire. It's all kind of emotionally uh, projected what's in my mind. I don't want to write a political album. I, I remember when Metallica wrote Injustice for All, it was kind of a politically motivated record, in my opinion. And uh, it didn't work that out that well for him, except one was on it, and that took off. But So I don't know what's going to happen. I just... Glad they have a vaccine. That's all I care about. But uh, actually, uh, I'm getting ready to gear up next week with my headphones. And I'm just going to start inundating myself. I wish I had your CD behind you, collection behind you there, Wendell. <laughs> I'll come to your house and we'll just start at the left and work our way to the right. You're always welcome here, Don. You know. I mean, look at those records. I, I could sit there for two weeks and go from everything from sepultura to, to slayer to beatles to and just listen to stuff and put it in my brain and see what my my mind comes up with you know there's there's four thousand cds back there holy shit i mean when you tell me chris that they did an album with a carol king re is that for yeah, real that's for real <laughs> that's for real that is for real it's called heavy hitters it's uh, according to the press it's they covered Prince's Kiss, you know, it's that the Kiss song. Yeah. Oasis's Champagne Supernova. That was a good song. It's a decent song. Duran Duran, Ordinary World. Um, REM, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And Carol King, I Feel the Earth. 
those are the those are the highlights. But those are not heavy hitters. No. Those are like vanilla. No offense, they're good songs, but those are vanilla tunes. Yeah, they're it's popular. the end of the world as we know it. They're popular hits. I mean, how, how did they how did did they rock them up or put some shredding guitar solos and limbs on them? Or you do you really think I took even one second to listen to this shit? Come on. <laughs> no, they must be really bored, but you know, everybody's got their mantra. Everybody's got their financial things. I guess they, if a record company is willing to give you money to put out Pablum, then put out the Pablum. But I, I hold my standards as a songwriter a little higher than that. Yeah. And if I'm going to do a remake, you know, I'm going to do something that was like super cool, like Paint It Black by the Stones or, you know, or Revolution by the Beatles or, you know, something that's awesome. And, do something like that, you know. I'm not going to do Carol Carol King, or I, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on with those guys, you know. I don't really talk to them much, and you know, Lynch and I we talk once in a while because he always wanted to move to Santa Fe. That's his dream. He's always wanted to come to New Mexico, and I said, hey, you know, you're welcome to come on up and stay in the casita. We, as they call them up here, a casita, the guest house, and you know, if you want to go hike, he hikes. He's a hiker. So uh, I got 13 acres. He could get lost very easily. I'm not going looking for him. <laughs> well, so, well, it Don, is what it is. Well, Don, I've always encouraged you, and I know that uh, the fans are very fickle, but maybe in 2021, somewhere down the line, if, if you know, live performances become a thing again, uh, you might throw at least one song from Up From The Ashes in the docking set. We actually brought that up. You know, we'd have to be headlining. And that's the issue. When you're, when you're uh, a headliner and you're doing like, we don't do stadiums anymore. We're doing like a couple thousand people at a casino venue. And they go, hey, you know, just just play 50 minutes. And I go... I'm not even getting on a plane to go play for 50 minutes. At least give us an hour and 20. But, you know, I'd love to play like Metallica does, two and a half hours. Then you can play songs from Up From The Ashes, Race The Slate, you know, uh, Broken Bones. I'd have more room, but I've had to concede that I know where my bread is buttered. Uh, you know, do I play something from Up From The Ashes and maybe people don't remember or do I do into the fire or do I do something from broken bones or do I do Paris is burning or breaking the chains or alone again. So, you know, the way it has been now is just, we play, we've had so many hits that we do eight or nine, 10 hits and the show's over. But uh, I, I, I have this memory that stuck in my head when I went to see Iron Maiden about, I don't know, 10 years ago. And they had a new album out. And I saw him at Universal Amphitheater, and I loved Iron Maiden. And I went to see him, and they only played the new album. Yeah, I was Remember? there. Top to bottom. Mm -hmm. And they and the encore, they threw in a couple, Run for the Hills, and they threw in a couple of the hits, like a, like a medley of all their biggest hits. And I remember people were really, really pissed off. 
Sure. But there's a yeah. big there's a big difference between a whole new album and one song. I, I look. I do one song. I'd love to do something from Up from the Ashes, and uh, honestly, I I always thought it'd be cool to do like, you know, Tooth and Nail, top to bottom, you know, and then the next night we do Up from the Ashes, top to bottom, you know, that might be a cool thing to mix it up, you know, every couple shows. But I remember that Iron Maiden thing. It kind of freaked me out because people were leaving and people didn't like the show and because they didn't know the songs and we got to own it at our age guys that music from my genre even the 90s it's nostalgia a lot of nostalgia connected to those songs mm -hmm. so if you can't emotionally connect to that song you can say oh i like that song it's really cool but i can't emotionally connect to it then you lose your audience, you know? Well, I, I agree. And the thing is, is that uh, probably six, maybe even seven years ago, you added Don't Close Your Eyes, which was really a surprise to me when I first heard it. That was fun. In Toledo for, yeah. for John's uh, birthday. I mean, this was this was a few years ago, and you, you threw in Don't Close Your Eyes, which was something I hadn't literally heard in years but you're still doing that today so you know switch it out with um you know something from up from the ashes i mean that that record i listened to it a lot and and i think that maybe one song just one song could be added into the set and it's just like holy shit dawkins playing something from up from the ashes and it's yeah, like, i agree Maybe like Crash and Burn would be cool yeah, or like that. That would be really cool. Give it up. Crash and Burn is such an up-tempo, you know, burner. It'd be a bit great song to open a show with. I, I remember I, we did Don't Close Your Eyes because John loves the song and it's a good vehicle for him to shred. And we started to do it. And I said, man, this, <clears throat> this song has a lot of teeth on it. You know, it's a good opener. So it kind of stuck in our set. But. I do notice when we play Crash and Burn, you know, people are rocking out, but I, I, I see that deer in the headlights in some of the people in the audience. They're like, well, what song is this? You know, they don't know it. You know, they just don't know it. So do you play for the fans or do I play for myself? But I like, if I play everything I want, I want to play. Oh, that would be a pretty wackadoodle yeah. shit. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to devil's advocate this a little bit, Don, because I agree with right. you with one exception, the super hardcores that go to every show, every time you play their city, when you give them that song that they, that they know, and the rest of the, the audience doesn't know, they're going to hold on to that forever. They're going to be like, holy shit, Doc and played give it so, up or whatever. You whatever. know what? You're right. They have to give it up or don't close your eyes. You know, you're right, Chris. That for the hardcore docking fans that have been so kind to us, you know, over this long, long career that I never thought I'd have this long. Uh yeah, I, I probably do owe them uh a song, what we call as we call a deep track. Sure. Yeah. Give them a deep track and because we're also guilty of people going, oh, we're going to see Dawkins. Oh, the same goddamn set they did last year. You know, so I, I'm just trying to figure out what to do. And I'm pretty sure this year we'll probably pick 
four or five of the big hits and and do throw and give it up or a crash and burn or you know something up a hell to pay or even or maybe broken bones or you know racist slave we will you know we were we used to do Race the Slate when Reb was in the band. It was a great song. It's on the video, Life from the Sun. It mm. is. And and that's a fantastic release. I mean, you know, I play a Race the Slate all the time. Dysfunctional, of course, as you know, is my favorite. And yeah. you were very kind to send me the gold record from Dysfunctional a couple of years ago for Christmas for my birthday. I love that record. I love it. Dude, I play that at least once a week. And I still do. And, uh, you know, I, I listened to that and that is such a deep record. So I can't even explain to you the, the insight from life experiences. I, I can't even imagine that you at your, in your forties to write a record like that and go, even to this day, 20, 20 some years later, I go, man, what was that guy thinking? And I, and I know you as a friend and I go, I can't even imagine thinking that deep for dysfunctional. Well, the, the, the thing was cool about that was I owned a recording studio. So there wasn't a financial issue, you know, it was free. I built it. And the biggest thing was I didn't have the boot of the record company on my neck. When I started writing that song, we had no record deal. We've been dropped, docking, you're done. And I said, well, it was supposed to be our my follow-up from Up in the Ashes. And I just wrote what the hell I felt. And even I look back, songs like The Maze, talking about walking around inside my mind, trying to find a way out and trying to figure out what's going inside my head. I mean, where in the hell did that come from? You know, I don't know. It just came to me. Well, when I look back at the track listing for Dysfunctional, and I know that I've pointed this out to you before, the one that really sticks out for me and always catches my ear all the time, I play this song all the time, and it's this mythological thing that, you know, other bands have covered, but uh, the whole thing with the lesser of two evils, with the whole Icarus thing. Yeah, Icarus. Yeah. Flying into the sun and having your wings melt and all that whole thing. Yeah. But the whole lesser of two evils is just, to me, is just an amazing song because it's just like, I'm caught between the lesser of two evils. It's like, am I good or am I bad? You know, the whole Icarus thing, falling from the sun, falling to the earth, you know, and the whole, you know, the whole lyric is, I, you know, I see the earth below me wondering where I'm going to hit. Right where I'm going to hit. And I must, I can only imagine maybe I was reading something, you know, Homer or some Greek mythology, or I saw something, you know, about old Greek legends that Homer and, uh, you know, wrote, and it's a story of Icarus. I mean, the story, you know, it, it's a song about, you know, he went too high. He didn't uh, listen to anybody, and he thought he could go up higher and higher and higher, and he paid the price. The wax on the wings melted, and he fell. So things like that, I never know what's going to inspire me. But, yeah, it was a very deep record. Sometimes I'm deep. I look back at some of the songs I wrote. They're not deep at all. In my dreams, it's just a typical love song and 
you know, there's nothing prophetic or philosophical about it. It's just a good, catchy rock song. But I have been writing lyrics because I've been reading a lot because there's nothing else to do. And uh, I'm into audible books. So, you know, I put the headphones on and people narrate the books. And I seem to grasp the book better when the person is reading it to me. Plus, I got terrible eyesight. I had uh, eye surgery on my left eye three weeks ago. And I was all excited. They're going to put a new lens I can see now because I was farsighted. And I came home and like one day, two days, three, four, five. The week goes by and I go, go back to I go, dude, I can't see. <laughs> he goes, what? I go, no, dude, I can't. I still can't see. No. I go, no, I'm telling you, man. I don't know what you did, but I can't effing see. So uh, I've been going back and he goes, yeah, I guess we have to redo the lens again. I'm like, man, I, I get the worst luck when it comes to people cutting on me. So um, I read, I do listen to a lot of audible books and probably, like you said, writing a song about Icarus. And I was really into Greek mythology and the Romans and all that stuff. And I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was reading one day Thoreau or reading and then reading The Catcher in the Rye. And then I'm reading On the Road, you know, the acid head guy. So I've always been kind of an eclectic person that gets his information that inspires me. But I, I'm really curious to see how this record is going to turn out. We have 14 songs now. They're ready. All I got to do, uh, actually, you're going to be here when uh, I'm, I'm singing all next week, right up to Christmas. I'm going to be here in the studio singing, you know, so uh, I'm just hoping it doesn't snow. <laughs> You know, Don, a good topic would be about a burn victim that turns DJ. That would be fantastic. Oh, man. You know, when I read your book, man, it was heartbreaking. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, and it kind of reminded me that you're a survivor. And I remember, you know, several tours we've gone back to play in. Where was the the bad fire? Was it Maryland? No, it was Rhode uh, Island. Rhode Island. Rhode Island. And I've had a lot of people come to that show that survived. Mm -hmm. But they talk about the several hundred people that died, but a lot of people survived. But I've had people come and they say, hey, there's so-and-so's here. They survived the fire. And I played that club a hundred times. And uh, and they have no fingers. Yeah. And their fingers are gone. And they got really in their face and their nose and it's just heartbreaking, you know, to see that what a horrible tragedy about getting burned and the pain of it and what, what you went through, you know, getting what over half your body burned? 69%, my friend. Ouch. I mean, if I get burned on the frying pan, you know, on my thumb, I'm, I go, I go to bed for three days, you know, <laughs> soaking my thumb in ice. I mean, it's a painful thing, you know, with, uh, nerve damage, you know, and skin grafting, you know, I won't get into this too deep, but, you know, John Norm is one of my favorite guitar players in the whole world. Sure. And I, I don't think you mind me talking about this, but when he was very young, he was a little bit of a fire bug. Okay. And he was lighting fires in Sweden with cans of gas and shit. I don't know how old he was. I think he was 12 or 13, 14. 
and he caught himself on fire. And John caught himself on fire and he burned his hands third degree. Right. And then he had to drop out of school and go to physical therapy, as you know all about. And that, if I remember correctly, he told me is that's why they told him to start playing guitar because he could, you know, exercise his fingers and the webbing of all the scar tissue. And John basically just sat around 10 hours a day practicing to try to get the nerve tissue damage in his hands to heal. And that's a horrible story that he did that. And that he turned out to be this amazing, one of the best guitar players in the world, but his tragedy turned into a blessing for him. Sure. No, I get it. Well, I'm just humbled that you actually took the time to read my book, man. That's, that's a pretty cool moment for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was, there was some st- Things that, you know, I have to say, you get teary-eyed and, and you know, it's just, I read it and I'm like, damn, you know, I mean, it actually, your book makes me feel guilty, I guess, because I'm like feeling sorry for myself that my hand's paralyzed, but, you know, I got to play guitar for 50 years and the doctor fucked up and, uh, but what you went through, you know, I think it's worse than having a paralyzed yeah. arm. You know what, man? And I tell people this all the time. There is no worse or better. You know, whatever yeah. you're going through is all encompassing. No matter yeah. no matter if it's a sprained ankle or what I went through or what you're going through. Yeah. It, it takes over your whole fucking life. And it's, you know, there's no there's no better or worse, man. I, you know, I may have gotten cooked 69%, but like you said, there's people that got burned 20% but lost their hands. They lost their fingers, yeah. So, which is worse? You know, it's worse. You know, yeah. there there is no. They're both they're both terrible. But you know, believe me, I I knock wood every day that you know I've I've been given almost ten thousand days I wasn't supposed to get. I don't ever look back at it as negative. I take it as the positive that I've gotten. And if today's the last one, then okay, I got so much more than I was supposed to you get. You got to have another life, and yeah, you know, people keep asking me, "How's your arm?" I said, "Well, it's." still paralyzed. How's your hand? It's still paralyzed, but it is better. You know, there was a time that I couldn't put my hand above my head. It would just hit me on the head and I can drive a car. Now I'm not in a walker anymore. I was in a walker for three months. Mm -hmm. I was on a cane for four months. So am I getting better? Technically? Yes. You know, I'm going acupuncture. I can move my thumb. The big thing they're working on now is my thumb. because I want to be able to hold a pick. Right. So I can play, you know. So I told that guy, go, let's just work on the thumb. This 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 didn't move before. So I guess there's progress, but it's gonna be a long road home. And uh hey, that's another good title for a song. <laughs> a long way home. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just, you know, I guess the COVID thing gave me this chance because I regret actually doing those two shows with Reb. I was a no physical condition to do those songs. You know, I had really bad equilibrium. My legs were weak. I was wobbling around the stage. People are going, oh man, Don's wasted. You know, I wasn't wasted. You were at one of them, Wendell. I was. You know? Virginia. I was just weak. I was just really, really weak. And then when I got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing at the NAM, I'd been out of the hospital like a week and a half. And then with, to top it all up, everybody was buying me drinks. 
and I didn't eat all day. I remember, I think Wendell goes, hey, Don, you better eat some pasta. I think you're a little lit. Well, we went out on the on the terrace away yeah. from the thing just to sit outside and breathe some fresh air and get away from everybody, actually. Yeah. But I kept drinking. People were buying me drinks. And then I go into the award show and I'm almost, it just hit me. And I went, I'm fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I am fucked up. And I remember my daughter's like, get them some food and you're going to be going on stage. And then I was just supposed to go up and talk a little bit. And I think my speech turned into some diatribe of, I was ruminating the same thing over and over again. And then they're like, okay. And he's going to sing a song. And I'm like, I am, I'm not going <laughs> to sing. You know, I was lit, man. So I did it. It wasn't a good moment. I'm not proud of it. But, uh, you know, it's, it is what it is. But uh, I guess if I look back then, a year ago, where I'm at now, I'm hiking every day with my dogs. So I'm up, in the, I'm up on my property hiking and driving. and So I'm, I'm slowly getting better. But, man, I got to tell you, I miss my guitar. I, I'm so used to at night picking up my guitar and just strumming it on the couch and, you know, just stare at the TV on mute and just playing some ideas. And this is a real big chunk of my life that I can't play guitar. Really frustrating. So I got to stay positive. But uh, it'd be like if you guys said, okay, you got your show, but your mics are not going to work. <laughs> you know, you have to yell through a bullhorn. So it's, it's frustrating, but I'm being positive and uh, I miss my dog. That's what I miss. I miss my dog, Cody. You know, I've had seven dogs in my life. I never have been attached to a dog like I was to Cody. It really uh, fucked my head up, you know, to watch me put him down on the front porch and put that shot in his leg and him looking at me with that look like, what are you doing? And I was like, Oh shit. I still think about that, but uh, that's why I'm looking for another dog. I guess I got to move on, you know? So, uh, but things like that, they stick with you. And uh, case in point about inspiration, when I watched Cody, you know, die, uh, I wrote a song called, what will I see when I close my eyes? That's the new name of the song. I, I was looking at his eyes and they were open. He was sedated. And I was thinking, what's going on in his head right now? What's going on in his head? What's he thinking? I could tell he knew he was going because he was trying to fight it and trying to get up. And, and uh, so I wrote a song inspired by watching him take his last breath. So there's all kinds of crazy shit in the world to get inspired by, you know, mm -hmm. but I want to keep this next album positive. If we need anything in this world, it's something positive. Look, if you guys didn't do music every day, and what the cool thing about your show is you're not just playing what the record company tells you to do. You're right. not, you know, as I call it, you don't have the boot of certain people on your neck to tell you what to do. Yep. You play what the fuck you want. You don't like it. Change the channel. Yep. Right? Absolutely. And we we pay for this, Don. I mean, Chris and I both pay. We put in money to make this thing happen, and we don't take money from anyone, and we do what we want to do, and we bring guys like you on mm -hmm. to speak the truth and speak what's on your mind, and we're not worried about censorship. Censorship is a problem. I mean, look, in L.A., you only got one rock station left. I don't know how many people live in L.A. It's like 8 million or something. 
and they had one station. I swear to God, they played Freebird every 45 minutes. <laughs> and I'm KLOS. And I go, when I was in LA, I turned it on because I was driving my old Stingray and it only has an AM FM radio. I didn't have, I don't have Sirius in my Stingray, my old 64 vet. And so I turned on KLOS and I was like, they're playing the same things over and over and over. And they're not even new songs. They're from like the 70s, right? 80s. And they call themselves a rock station. Bullshit. You know, they, and it's boring. It's just boring as hell, you know? It's, yeah. it's safe. It's safe. But then everybody wants to be tough. And all the radio stations have their mandatory Metallica Sundays, you know? <laughs> mandatory Metallica on Sundays for an hour. I'm like, oh, so that makes you legit, right? Right. But if I send a docking record to them, you know, they're going to make a fucking coaster out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't care, though. Like you said, all I care about is my fans. Yep. You know, I got to say, when we went to Germany last year, played the Bakken Festival, 60,000 people. And we hadn't been there in four years. And I looked out and everybody in the audience was singing the lyrics. That really gave me a shot in the arm. Well, 20 year olds, 18 year olds, 15 year olds, 60 year olds. They all knew the song. I was like, I was looking at the boys going, Hey, check that out, man. They're singing along. That gave me a shot in the arm that I'm not talking about my music. I'm just talking about good music will, will live on forever. And the songs that were the flavor of the week, and I can think of several, and I'm not going to say who, uh, those songs won't survive the test of time. They won't. Well, when we were out on the road back in March, Don, uh, obviously yeah. you have fans who actually named their kids Dokken, which yeah. it came out to the show, and they're passing that legacy on to their children. So uh, you're you're you know, regardless of what happens, good, bad, or indifferent, your legacy, your music will live on forever. Well, I hope so, and I hope I live a long life and. I'm a lot healthier, I'd say, now than I've ever been because I have the time to hike and exercise and take 8 million vitamins a day and have my protein smoothies in the morning and work, do my exercises. And, you know, the, the road's tough, man. I was drinking Jack Daniels for, you know, as you know, we went on the road. We'd always go the bottle of Jack's backstage. And, and I remember I'd always laugh. I'd get mad. i go, because John and I were the only two guys that drank. Chris didn't drink. Mick drove Jim Beam. And after the show, I say, God damn it, who drank my Jack? And, and Wendell goes, uh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I did? I drank that whole bottle? Well, you and John did. And I went, man, that's a lot of booze, and I'm not even buzzed. And that's not a good thing. Right. When you can drink a half a bottle of Jack and you're not even high, that's probably a wake-up call to maybe stop. So I don't drink hard liquor anymore. I had to give that up. And I drink my bottle. I drink my glass of wine at night. And uh, I literally had, <laughs> I literally protect myself from myself, took my whole wine liquor cabinet and tequila, whiskey, Maker's Mark, Jim Bean, took everything and threw it in the trash and went, this shit has to go, man. I can't, I can't keep up the pace. You know, I can't keep up the pace anymore. Some people can. I mean, I, I respect people like uh, 
when I went to uh, John Norum's wife's funeral, Michelle, who was in uh, Phantom Blue, and I remember uh, all the guys from uh, Black Label Society showed up, and uh, they were wasted, <laughs> you know? Jeez. And I remember, uh, what the hell is his name? Great guitar player. Big huh? Zach Wild. Zach, yeah. Zach came, and I remember he wasn't driving. He had somebody driving in his pickup truck, and he was pretty lit, you know. And I remember uh, I saw a thing on Zach that they told him, you know, your liver, you know, this and that, you know, you, you probably got, you know, four or five years, and you'll be out of here, you know. And he quit drinking, and he looks great. And uh, that was a funny funeral because the the – Preacher was a musician, and all these musicians were there. And here's the guy doing the eulogy saying, you know, uh, I'm a little bit of a musician myself. <laughs> and we're all going, uh-oh. And he goes, yeah, I'd like to play a song for you. Oh, and we're like, he's shitting us, right? And he puts on this karaoke tape and started singing this song. And Zach stands and goes, dude. Just fucking get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was so funny when Zach said that. And I look over and John had taken like four Xanax and his, his head was like down his lap, you know, because he was so upset. He was like practically unconscious. And I thought, it's a good rock and roll funeral. <laughs> Jeez. So I, I, I see a lot of people that, have, you know, quit drinking, quit doing drugs. You know, James Hetfield, he owns it. He was drinking like a fish and he quit. And a lot, of, I guess we get older, we just have more of a sense of our mortality. When you have an accident like getting burned and you think I'm going to die, I mean, the, when I saw your book, I mean, 69%, the chances are not real good of you surviving, Chris. No, I know. They they told they told my ex to call any, make any arrangements she needed to make. They said not coming out of it. Yeah, because you know, people don't understand your your skin is what you your, is breathing, mm. and that's how you get your oxygen. That's how your body survives. If you're not getting oxygen in your body, you know, not just through your mouth, you're you're not going to make it. Yeah, but not it wasn't your time. You still got a few more chicks to chase, and <laughs> and uh, a couple more pinballs games to have, and yep. you know. So we're all the good news. I guess we're all still here. Yep, that's it. I'm going to make some more music, but uh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm not doing any Carol King songs. <laughs> I mean, that's just bizarre. Why don't they? I, 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 I guess I have to call Jeff and harass him. <laughs> and I see that the Lynch Mob album called Reimagined, uh, he's not going to call Lynch Mob anymore because of the PC, because of the Indians. Right. And that makes no sense. He got attacked, I guess, by, oh, lynch mob, Indians, hanging Indians. I'm like, no, 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 no. They were hanging bank robbers and cattle rustlers and bad people and black people, you know. So it wasn't just about Indians, but I guess the name lynch mob now, everything's so PC now. Yeah, it is. Holy shit. I mean, you can't. I did all these interviews for the Lost Tapes which I just got a, an email yesterday that that album was voted one of the top 50 records of 2020, which is 
amazing that it's just old demos of mine when I'm 23 years old. It's getting really good response. It's sold a lot. And, and uh, but I do all these interviews and I, I always have to be really careful what I say, you know. I can't talk about banging chicks in the back of the bus. And <laughs> <laughs> well, you can come on here and be honest anytime you want, Don. You know that. Oh, I've, I've listened to your show. You guys talk about some uh, pretty, uh, how would I put it, <laughs> politically incorrect subjects. Uh, we, we got thrown off of Vimeo last week because of, Oops. quote, unquote, hate speech. <laughs> Which really wasn't because we were just discussing uh, Rob Halford's book, who he basically admitted to trolling uh, rest stop bathrooms to get a Hummer. And because we discussed that from his book specifically, we got thrown off of Vimeo and our account deleted. But that's true. It's true. No matter. As we talked about it, Vimeo uh decided it was hate speech against gays that's ridiculous i remember i did the turbo lover tour around the time there was somebody trying to break into my room who is it <laughs> hey Elka. yeah go lay up there on the couch that's one of the shepherds she's needy i remember we were getting ready to do the turbo lover tour and i was such a fan of halford's uh, I have to say that was a very inspirational record. Their album, uh, Sad Wings Destiny, when I and they weren't famous yet. They hadn't made it in America. I saw them at the Whiskey A Go Go, you know, for 400 people. And when I heard that record, I used to listen to it over and over and over and over. It was just a brilliant record. So then you fast forward, you know, 10 years. We're doing the Turbo Lover tour. And, you know, and I, I see Rob at his leathers and his Harley, and he's very macho and studs, and people are going, you know, that guy's gay. And I'm like, no, he's not. And they go, yes, he is. And I say, you, you say that again, I'm going to punch you in the mouth, you know, because <laughs> I thought they were slandering him, you know. But I would really, I remember I almost drug a guy out of the rainbow one night, was talking some smack about Rob, and I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you out in the parking lot and bitch slap you. Just shut up, you know. You don't know him. You don't know the guy. If he is or isn't, it's none of your business. Talk, talk and shit about him because he's my idol. So, of course, I would give the, the Turbo Lover tour. And yeah, about halfway through the tour, I realized he's gay. <laughs> because he, I, was, I, remember, I, remember, I remember looking at my hotel room and he had some Speedos on. You know, those little tiny Speedo bathing suits. And his security guard was rubbing lotion all over him, but he was he was rubbing a little too close to the junk, you know. And I went, "Oh shit, I think he is gay." And then uh, and then Rob and I talked about it on the tour, and he was telling me how he'd laugh because he would troll the the bondage stores of Hamburg, Germany, and go to all the S and M and get the leather jackets with the studs and the bells. That was all S and M. You know, and he's in there buying his stage clothes in the S&M sex shops down the whorehouse district of the Reaper Bond in Hamburg. And then the whole band kind of bought into that whole image. But the whole thing came from his S&M clothes. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool. You know, we talked about it. 
and he's a good guy. And I wish he'd hurry up and do something new too. You know, Halford. Well, there's supposedly a new Judas priest coming out 2021. So, you know, if the COVID gets under control, it's going to be an onslaught of bands. We're going to be fighting for their venues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the big concern, man, is, are there going to be enough venues to play? Because not only are you going to be fighting for them, but you're going to be fighting for 50% less of them because a lot of them are, a bulk of them are going to close or they're have gone. Like Wendell said, the Agora, those, those clubs are gone, man. They're done. They're shut down. Huh? There's a, I know four, my, my agent keeps calling me goes, well, that club's done. That club's done. I said, you mean done like until COVID? No, they're done. Yeah. They're out of business. The theaters. Mm-hmm. Which is our, you know, like the medium size thousand, two thousand seaters are gone. So you either got the festivals, you got casinos, but the clubs are all gone. LA, I, I don't, the only reason the whiskey is still there is because they own it. You know, they own the whiskey. But it, to drive down Hollywood Boulevard, uh, Sunset Boulevard, and see the Roxy, the whiskey, all the clubs, they're just, Shut down, right? And what? And in the clubs and in restaurants, I'm a foodie. You know me. I'm a foodie. I'm always on a diet. <laughs> I love my French food, and I love my food. And I love my fat and my foie gras, and and all the restaurants here in Santa Fe are out of business. No sushi, zero. I love my sushi. They're all out of business. The French restaurants. All you got left is Mexican food takeout. That's it. Wow. And it's very uh, sad. And the Navajo Nation, they're all infected. And the world's fucked up, guys. You guys talk about the world's fucked up. And I don't know. I just hope this vaccine, I do find it ironic that I said something a week before the election. I said, don't be surprised if the whoever, Trump wins or Biden, don't be surprised that a, a week after the election, magically they have a vaccine. Yep. One week, four five, days, five days after you don't think they had that vaccine on, you know, already on the back burner for months. Of course they did because they didn't want Trump to take the credit. Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that, Don. They were like, Oh, we put the vaccine out. Trump is a braggadocio and that's the way it goes. They didn't want Trump to get the credit for doing warp speed so they just held it all back. And then as soon as the election was over, hey, we got a vaccine. Two of them. Well, that's why I respect you, Don, because you see things for what they really are. Yeah. That was a total political move. Absolutely. You know, damn well, Pfizer said, whoever you're a Republican or Democrat, they didn't want, you know, Trump to get the credit. Absolutely. Even though he started Warp Speed. Yep. And, and he said he basically opened up the checkbook and said, any scientist in the world that wants to work on this, get on it, everybody. So, you know, it's politics or politics, man. I'm just going to stick to music and playing with my dogs. And, you know, and I'm up, you know, where I live, I'm up in the middle of nowhere. I'm looking out my window right now. <laughs> I can see just endless city lights a few miles away in the Colorado mountains. And and you can you see know, Albuquerque 50 miles away. I know. I can see Albuquerque over here, just a couple lights. 
I see Santa Fe in front of me, Colorado Mountains. And the funny thing is, when I look out my studio window, I see Los Alamos, yeah. where they made the bomb. And uh, it's up there. And you see these little twinkles of lights. You know, that town's still pretty pretty hush-hush. It's pretty on lockdown. I don't know what's going on up there, but it's a kind of a trippy town, you know. <laughs> it's a very wealthy town because the scientists get paid a lot of money from the government. Will you guys go back to your show? I'm going to, I just, I'm all happy because I just finished my second season of one of my favorite shows and The Mandalorian. I love that show. I watched the first season and now the second season all came out yesterday and I binged on it. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen The Mandalorian. It's a spin-off on Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't give up too much. I'm only up to episode one of season two. So. The Mandalorian? Yeah. Oh man, I love little Yoda, little baby Yoda. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it ended uh, yesterday. And the bitches, they said it'll be out the next season next year in December. Mm -hmm. Remember it's Game of Thrones? I couldn't fucking keep up. You know, you, you right. come with me, I go, well, it's been a year. I don't know what's going on. I had to go back and watch the previous season to, find a, to remind myself what the hell was going on. Right. You know, it ain't the same, but I've watched more Netflix in the last uh, four months than I have in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> you guys take care. I'll let you go. All right, Don. Yeah. I'll see you in about five days. I'll see you in about five days. And uh, you and I are going to be eating meat. That's fine with me. Yeah, man. I got some I got some steaks for us. And the, the rest of the girls here can, can uh, have their tofu pies. and. <laughs> 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 and they have their uh, tofu steaks and, you know, it's cool. You know, it's healthy, but uh, we're going to be digging into some dead cow. I'm all about it. <laughs> all, all right, guys. Right, since we talked about uh, covering songs, I, I'm going to end something here with the Yardbirds cover that you did, uh, the uh, Heart Full of Soul. That came out. I am so proud of that song. That's a case in point. I grew up with that song when I was 14 years old and 40 years later, I got to do it and it just kicks ass. I love it. All, All right. right. Well, Blast it out. I'll see I'll you. you guys soon. Chris, take, take care of yourself. Stay out of trouble. All right, brother. We'll do I, you too. I know right. you're a troublemaker. I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here it is from long way home. This is docking with heart full of soul exclusively here on your classic 